0: This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. While this podcast doesn't really tell a linear story, and will jump back and forth through time, it's actually best to start at the beginning, so I encourage you to go back and do that and start listening at episode one. Episode three, A Guitar is Like an Old Friend. A smile relieves a heart that grieves. Remember what I said. I'm not waiting on a lady. I'm just waiting on a friend. The Rolling Stones. Waiting on a friend. I would be remiss if I didn't spend at least a little time talking about my friendship with Jason, the drummer for Exploding Boy. Our relationship has rarely been an easy one, especially when we were on the road full-time together. We often had different ideas about how things should proceed creatively over the years with Exploding Boy, but I credit him with pushing the band to always think bigger and always outside of the box. He is the sole reason we didn't end up just being a flash in the pan high school band. Being a year older than me, I always viewed him as kind of an older brother, and we fell into some of the familiar patterns that siblings often do. We had an almost humorous way of bickering and communicating with one another. During the road years, when we lived in Northern Virginia, everyone, including my girlfriend at the time, referred to Jay as my wife. The phone would ring and it would be, Michael, phone's for you. It's your wife. Jay still holds the distinction of being the most sarcastic person I've ever met. His whole family has an acerbic wit and a blunt way of communicating that is at once jarring, but also hilarious. At one point when we were younger, Jay was in the process of growing his hair out, as we all were at the time. There is, incidentally, photographic and video evidence of this, and it's awful. Jason's father, a respected doctor, clearly was annoyed by his son's appearance. So he asked him, Hey, pal, are you going to be getting a haircut anytime soon? To which Jay replied, Actually, I was thinking about growing it all the way out to my ass. His father, who never missed a beat, said dryly, Why don't you grow your ass hairs up to your head instead? It was never a dull moment being around his family. As a result, I have never really gotten along very well with people who hold back in expressing themselves. Passive-aggressive people and I don't mix at all. You always knew where you stood with Jay. And Anthony from Exploding Boy is exactly the same. I still count on both of them for the most gloves-off opinions about anything and everything. They always tell me what I need to hear. It's almost always not what I want to hear, but it's nice to have that perspective when I need it. It was an interesting dynamic being in a three-piece band. There was rarely, if ever, an occasion where there were three different opinions on anything. And in the case of arguments, it was always two against one. Sometimes Jay and I would be on one side and Anthony on the other. But mostly, it was Jay and Anthony as a unified front and me on the other side. That's most often how things fell. I tend to be a little defensive and reactive at times, and this is probably still a contributing factor. That trait is in my family too. Aside from being bandmates for most of our high school years, Jason and I ended up as college roommates when we attended St. Bonaventure University in Olean, New York together. He's the first person I ever got drunk with in high school chugging Bacardi rum straight out of the bottle using bubblegum as a chaser. Yep, pure class. I was a late bloomer in that department. I would wait till nearly the end of my senior year to even try alcohol of any kind. Later in life, however, I would develop a faulty turn-off-the-drinking switch. But I would eventually quit drinking altogether. It's now been nearly eight years since my last drink, and there's a story to go with that too. More on that another time. Right now, I'm going to take you all in a completely opposite direction. In college, we drank heavily together, as most college aged people do. We started something we called the 151 Club together that we would participate in about once a month. Jay and I and a few other guys would buy a bottle of Bacardi 151 proof rum. We'd find an aerosol can top, rinse it out, of course, and would then pour the 151 into the center cup. About a shot's worth, and either Coke or Pepsi around the outside chamber, and then we'd drink it like a shot. A painful, burning, strong as fuck shot. We called them waterfalls or donuts. Waterfalls because when you drank them, the 151 would go down the center of your mouth, surrounded by the soda on the outside, like a waterfall. Although, if you've ever had anything with 151 or higher proof, you'll know that it's about the furthest thing from water on the planet. The soda took it down a notch on the pain scale, but only slightly. And we called them donuts, because when you held the aerosol top filled to the brim in the center with 151 and around the outside with soda, it resembled kind of a liquid donut. We would get very drunk on that stuff. We once held a monthly meeting of the 151 Club so early on a Friday night that we ended up going out looking for house parties before 7 p.m., along with a friend of ours named Dave. We ran across a group of guys who rented a house just off campus who were just tapping their keg at around 7.30. They were prepping for a weekend house party, and they reluctantly let the three of us in. We were clearly all blinding drunk, and most likely we were either going to pass out or cause some kind of trouble. They told us to make ourselves at home, handed us three solo cups, and within less than one minute, I had dumped a full beer onto their living room carpet. A little later, our friend Dave ended up throwing up in their kitchen, not long after more guests had arrived. I vaguely remember hearing, Someone puked in the kitchen! They're making him clean it up! And when I popped my head out of curiosity into the kitchen, I saw none other than our friend Dave, all smiles with a mop and a bucket, He just looked at me and he said, Hey man, I puked in the kitchen. They're making me clean it up. Shockingly, we all managed to stay out for the whole night, but I recall it being one of the more crazy and debaucherous nights of my college career. For all his sarcasm, wit, and tough exterior, Jason also has a very soft side which only a select few people have been privy to. I am one of those lucky people. One weekend, during a particularly snowy winter season at St. Bonaventure, Jay and I had some friends visiting us from out of town. Our plan was to pregame in our dorm room and then catch the bus into town to hit the bars. I should mention that we lived on the third floor of our dorm. The bus pulled up that night slightly early, so there was a mad dash out of the room to make our way down to the bus stop. I filled each of the two pockets of my winter coat with a bottle of beer and was the last one out of the room. I could see through the large picture window at the end of our hallway that everyone else was already down at the bus stop. Mildly drunk, I hit the stairwell like a bat out of hell, and when I reached the last landing, I misjudged the distance from the top step to the bottom and took a really misguided leap. Mid-jump, I realized I was not going to clear the steel beam overhead and smacked my forehead on it. I landed at the bottom of the stairs in a heap, stunned and in shock. I experienced one of those moments where I was drunk enough to not actually immediately feel the pain, but I was also conscious enough to know that I had fucked myself up pretty seriously. I put my hand to my forehead and quickly realized that I had given myself a fairly significant head wound. I was covered in blood. Thankfully, at that exact moment a guy who I knew from one of my classes and his girlfriend happened to be walking past the doorway and the landing where I was laying on their way out the door to catch the bus. They reacted with shock and horror and helped me up out the door across the courtyard to the infirmary, which was thankfully very close by. Leaving a trail of blood on the way over, I discarded the beers in my jacket pockets. I had bled on both of them as I tossed them in a high drift of snow. Later on, someone and I'm still not sure who, would scoop these bloody beers up from the snowdrift and place them back in the fridge in our dorm room, where they would await my triumphant return from seeking medical attention as a sort of victory treat. After leaving me with the staff at the infirmary, I told the couple to see if they could locate Jay at the bus stop and let him know of my current situation. And I told them to make sure to let him know that I was fucked up, but that I was okay. By the time he made it over to the infirmary, The staff had wrapped an enormous bandage around my head, which I had apparently started bleeding through, so I'm sure I looked a bit like a wounded soldier. Jason's jaw hit the floor the moment he saw me, as tears filled his eyes and he rushed to my side. The infirmary staff had summoned a security officer to drive over and to give me a ride to the hospital located in town nearby, as they didn't have the proper equipment or wherewithal to treat me or even properly examine me there on campus. Jay insisted that he was going to ride along with me. I sat in the front seat, Jay sat in the back. I recall fairly vividly that Jay kept his hand on my shoulder for the entire ride from the back seat. He cried the whole way over there, and just kept saying over and over, You're going to be okay, man. You're going to be okay. Obviously, my situation looked far worse than it actually was, but head wounds always bleed like a total bitch. Luckily, I only came away from the night with a nasty headache, a partially shaved hairline, and 12 stitches across my forehead that left a scar that I still wear proudly to this day. You can only really see it if I furrow my brow and my forehead. Jay stayed with me, even getting belligerent and sarcastic with the doctors who treated me. They wouldn't allow him to be in the room while they injected Novocaine into my forehead and stitched me up, so he called them fucking cow doctors for this offense. A reference to the fact that our college was sort of in the middle of nowhere. The population there in only New York in 1990 was just under 17,000 people. Incidentally, it's the 2,492nd largest city in the United States. It's mostly rural farm country. You get the idea. Thankfully, the doctors were professional and ignored Jay's protestations. He was worried to death. It was very sweet. And I won't forget it. Jay and I would also end up having not one, but two actual fistfights with each other. Both times involving alcohol. Shocking. The first time was at St. Bonaventure. Our friend Bill from Rochester was visiting. And I can't tell you what the actual fight was even about. Probably nothing important. It took place in our dorm room at the end of an alcohol-soaked evening. I think I might have thrown the first punch. Which, incidentally, never even landed. I'm not much of a fighter, as you know if you caught episode one. Jay got in a good crack to my jaw, and our friend Bill got in the middle to break things up. I was told much later that as Bill was holding Jay back and I was drunkenly flailing away, I was actually punching Bill the whole time. He was a tough guy and a great friend. Once things had broken up, I made my way over to my girlfriend at the Times dorm to spend the night with her there she lived one building over from us in a co-ed dorm separated by floors ground floor guys second floor girls and so on i don't think i was there for more than an hour when there was a knock at her door she opened it and there stood a still very drunk jason who was also very clearly emotional and wanting to apologize at this moment i had to use the bathroom so i told him to walk with me up one floor to the guy's bathroom above He followed me into the men's room and was profusely apologizing, and now was starting to cry a little. This didn't happen all the time. So there I was, at a urinal, dick in hand, and there was Jay, in tears, arm around me, telling me how sorry he was. This was a very busy time of night in that dorm, and the bathroom was a bevy of activity. Guys coming in and out, dudes taking showers, etc., I can't imagine what was going through their minds seeing us there like that, but it's really fucking funny. The second fistfight took place in Charlotte, North Carolina after an Exploding Boy Road gig during the late 90s. Again, I'm not really sure what we fought over. I remember that Jay and I were sharing a hotel room for the night. Joel and Jim were sharing an adjoining room as well. And the two of us were just throwing each other around the room like a couple of Girl Scouts. If you've ever seen the 1980 comedy movie, Airplane, you'll get the reference. In the scene in question, two Girl Scouts literally destroy a bar, throwing punches and then chairs and tables at each other, until one girl launches the other one down the length of a bar, smashing glasses and bottles in the process. That was Jay and I. Apparently, we received a complaint or two, and the hotel called our room giving us a warning, which we completely ignored after answering the phone, and starting the fight up all over again. The front desk then called a second time not too long after and told us that we'd be kicked out if they had to call a third time. I remember going to bed swearing at each other and hurling insults at one another from our respective beds. Oh yeah, and it was another situation where I never landed a punch. Jay got another good crack in across my jaw. Apparently, he had a mean right hook that I just couldn't dodge. I also remember a less emotional apology the next morning from Jay. Oh yeah, and Advil. A shit ton of Advil. If you've ever been smacked in the jaw really hard, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Not fun. Now here's something a bit more heartwarming for you. Some years earlier, Exploding Boy was playing one of our many showcase gigs at a venue called The China Club in New York City. We played that club many, many times over the years. This particular gig was also a benefit show for the T.J. Martell Foundation, which specialized in cancer research. There was also a raffle for some really cool high-dollar prizes with all the proceeds going to charity. The grand prize for the night was a beautiful black Gibson Chet Atkins solid-body acoustic guitar. One of only 50 made for the purpose of either being given away or auctioned off. It came with a certificate of authenticity signed by Chet Atkins himself and Travis Tritt. Such a cool prize that all three Exploding Boy members, Jay, Anthony, and I, all readily ponied up $5 each to buy a ticket for and a chance to win. A while later, we had no sooner taken the stage and were ready to play our headlining set when they brought the evening's MCs on stage to draw the grand prize raffle and to introduce us. None of us remotely saw it coming, when they miraculously drew Jason's name out of the hat and awarded him the grand prize. To say I was jealous would be the understatement of the decade. It was an absolute killer of a guitar. Jay was really excited, and he kept telling us that he might consider taking guitar lessons. We knew that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. He was encouraged by everyone we knew to put the guitar away, keep it under lock and key, and let it appreciate. So, He just slid the case under his bed at home and left it there. Every single time I'd go over, I'd ask him if I could take it out and play it. He'd always say yes, and I'd inevitably play it for a while, just torturing myself. Flash forward several years. It was the morning of my 25th birthday. The doorbell rang at my parents' house. I went down to answer it and opened the door to Jason, standing there with the Gibson case in his hand. He gave it over to me and simply said, happy birthday. I was in disbelief and also really moved and really excited. He then said, I have conditions to this gift. Oh yeah? What are they? To which he replied, you need to play the absolute shit out of this thing. I mean, take it out. Don't baby it. Beat the shit out of it. Instruments are meant to be played not locked away under a bed or in a glass case. So I kept good to my word. To this day, I have played more gigs on that acoustic guitar than any other instrument I've owned before or since, and it has the battle scars to show for it. The headstock has been broken off three separate times in that infamous place where many Gibsons break. The first time it happened is pretty noteworthy. When we lived in Northern Virginia during our full-time road years, we were doing an acoustic gig relatively close to home in Alexandria, Virginia. The guitar happened to fall off of a guitar stand in just the right way in the break after our first set. We still had two more sets to play, and the Chet was the only guitar I had brought with me. There would be no time to just pop home and get another guitar, so we had to improvise. Jay and our bassist Joel sprang into crisis management mode and grabbed our trusty roll of duct tape. The truth is, That shit saved our asses on more occasions out on the road. It's a touring essential. No joke. Duct tape is practically the ninth wonder of the world. I loosened the strings, which were flopping about pretty significantly due to the way the crack happened. I vividly remember Joel holding the headstock in place while Jay wrapped the duct tape around it in an almost comically tight way. Depending on the length of a given guitar neck, the gauge of the strings, the composition of the strings, And the tuning employed, there can be anywhere from about 100 pounds to more than 200 pounds of pressure exerted on a guitar neck. Through the absolute miracle of duct tape, when I tuned the guitar up, it would actually hold tune for a little while each time. Inevitably, the headstock would slip from where it broke, and the guitar would once again be out of tune. However, and this is the God's honest truth, I was able to play. Two more sets with the guys and finished the night with the headstock duct tape back within an inch of its life. I got about two songs worth of playing time in each time I tuned up. The guitar would slip back out of tune slowly over the course of a couple songs, and then I'd tune it back up and get another two songs and so on. I had it repaired professionally, and it held through some of the most brutal conditions during my solo acoustic years in Gainesville, Florida. Six to seven nights a week, three to four hours a night and sometimes even two shows a day until it inevitably fell off a stand again at some point and broke in a second spot right next to where the original crack was. You would think I would have invested in a better guitar stand at some point. Nope. The next repair wouldn't hold because the wood in that area of the guitar had become so thin and weak that there simply wasn't any way it could withstand the pressure the strings put on it. I had several guitar repair guys look at it over the years telling me that it simply was beyond fixing. So I tucked it away in its case for about five years once I'd moved to Nashville and had considered repurposing it as a piece of furniture or a clock or something else. I decided to give it one last chance and gave it over to my friend Tony Nagy, who, as it happens, runs the guitar repair shop at the world-famous Groon Guitars in Nashville. He's been my luthier since moving to Tennessee, and I won't trust anyone else with my guitars. They always come back to me better than they went in. He looked the guitar over, and he told me that he believed he could fix it. And coming from a guy who's worked on instruments for the likes of people like Eric Clapton and God knows who else, I was willing to leave it with him and to see what he could do. It would also need new frets, an entire new set of electronics, and an undersaddle pickup replacement before I was done. So I left it with Tony at Groon's for a full year, telling him that I was in no rush. I didn't care how long it took or how it even looked, as long as I was able to bring it out again at some point and play it again, like I'd promised Jay so many years earlier. At the end of that year, the day finally arrived when I got the phone call from Tony that the guitar was fixed. I was astounded by the work he'd done. It still beat to shit in all the other normal places, But where the neck was broken, there's literally zero evidence that anything ever happened. In Tony's words, you'd actually have to try to break it now. Since that time, I've had it out on the road again, and I've played some gigs around town, and it sounds and plays better than ever. I once loaned it to Gavin DeGraw on a gig I did in Nashville when he showed up and needed a guitar. He played his hits Chariot and I Don't Want to Be on it and absolutely leveled the entire room and it was really cool to see him playing my guitar. I also rented it out for a weekend on another occasion as a favor to Randy Owen, lead singer for the band Alabama. His Chet Atkins was in the shop, and he needed one in a pinch. Randy paid me $100, and I got a few photos of him on stage playing my guitar from his tech and a couple of triangular custom Alabama logo guitar picks thrown in the case for good measure. Nice touch. I'd say that I have more than kept my word to Jay, and the Gibson Chet Atkins continues to be one of my most prized possessions. Jason is still family to me, also my brother. I love him, and I'm grateful that we're still in each other's lives all these years later. A little beaten up, a little broken, a lot of miles and a lot of years, but none the worse for wear, and in some ways, stronger than ever. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.